now for tonight, um, just for one week only, can I invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab, and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why should you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to a son, would you wait until he grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. With this they wept aloud again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Luke said, Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go with her. But Ruth replied, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And that I shall be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was uh, beginning. Well, let's uh, pray for God's help as we study His Word together. Father, these are uh, marvelous chapters in your word, so much, so much that we can learn. Help us to learn something tonight that is of benefit to us in our Christian lives, mostly though, to focus our minds on you, your glory, and the Lord Jesus, for we ask it all in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now, the book of Ruth is a very little story in the Old Testament 
a very little book in the Bible, but it is a book with a big heart. When we go to Port Stewart in a week, the golfing world will be there. It is the week of the Irish Open, and then following that, the Port Stewart Convention. And golfers, as many of you know, have a tendency to waggle on the tee. Preachers also have a tendency to waggle on the tee. Let me waggle on the tee just for a moment and see how far we go. And I will finish in time for you to go up to the faith mission. We'll just stop when we run out of time. But it's helpful, I think, for us just to waggle on the tee before we drive off down the first chapter so that we understand why this book is in the Bible. It is a a very precious book in the Bible because it says something really astonishing to us. Every Bible book is there for a distinctive reason. They all point to Jesus. Everything finds its yes in him. But each Bible book is there for a reason to bless God's people down the years. Let me suggest to you that amongst many messages and things we can learn from the book of Ruth, And slightly discouraging for me, all the different commentators and all the different preachers in Ruth think there are lots of different things in the book, probably because they are. But here's the heart of it, I think. Here's why this book is in the Bible. So that you and I will know that even in the darkest of times, God is sovereignly and providentially at work for the good of his people in advancing his salvation plan through his chosen king. Let me say that again. Some of you I can see are are scribbling. I hope they're all scribbling in a week's time when I say that. Here we go again. Even in the darkest of times, not in the darkest of times, but even in the darkest of times, God is providentially and sovereignly at work for the good of his people in advancing his salvation plan through his chosen king. Now, these were dark times. Look at chapter 1, verse 1, in the days that the judges ruled. Now, I could take you to the book of Judges, and I could show you uh, the decline in God's people. He had said to them, look, I will be your God. I will be your God. I will provide for you. My presence will be with you. I will put you in Bethlehem and Judah. Bethlehem means the house of bread. Lechem is the Hebrew word for bread. I will provide for you. All I need from you is your trust and obedience. Trust and obey. And yet, the book of Judges is a story that is quite the opposite of that. It's a cycle. God's people disobey. They cry to God. He raises up a judge, a deliverer. Things get a little better and then bleaker and then a little less better, and a little more bleaker, and then just a tiny bit better, and much, much bleaker. So you get to a chapter like Judges 19, which is arguably the bleakest and darkest incident recorded in the whole of Scripture. And that bleak and dark incident that is almost too shocking to read occurs in God's holy land amongst God's holy people. These are the days in which the judges rule. They are dark times. 
Yet even in the darkest of times, God is sovereignly at work for the good of his people and advancing his plan through his king. Turn with me to the end of the book of Ruth. It's always a bad idea to look at the end on day one, but nonetheless, I think many of you might know the story, so let's just take a sneaky peek at the way it turns out. Not long enough to really, but it's helpful, I think, to see how it turns out. Chapter 4, verse 16, Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. Just in case you know the book of Ruth and you've always thought that Boaz is the redeemer, he is. He's a kinsman redeemer. That's a particular thing in Jewish law. But the real redeemer in this story is the baby, the baby born in Bethlehem, that Naomi, who had lost her sons, cradles in her arms, that baby who will give her life. And they named him Obed, which means the one who worships the eternal. He was the father of Jesse, the father of, now here's a Bible word with a bang, David. This then is the family tree of Perez, Perez, the father of Herzon, Herzon, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. David, in the days the judges ruled, is how the book begins, it ends with David. David is one of the most significant names in salvation history. God's chosen king. And whenever we hear the name Jesus, David, there we go, I was ahead of myself. Whenever we hear the name David, we hear the name, almost came out, that was the Holy Spirit moving. Jesus. David. Jesus. Great David's greatest son. Listen to the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they all answer, of course, the son of David. And Jesus said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls his son Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And, and of course, Jesus is both David's son and David's Lord. And that genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth is not meant to lead us to just another name in a family tree. It is meant to lead us to the name that is above every name, Jesus' name. And not just the coming of Jesus as God's King, not just His glorious work of redemption, not just the glory of the cross that gives way to the glory of the resurrection, coronation, and reign of Jesus, not just to the giving of His Holy Spirit, Christ in us, to bear the gospel to the nations of the earth, but supremely in the return of the King, the day we, you, and I... I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking, what will I say? And of course, I don't know what I'll say. The day we will see His glory, face to face, even in the darkest of times, in the days the judges ruled, God is sovereignly at work for the good of His people in advancing His salvation plan through His chosen King, David, Jesus, 
Now, here's something really wonderful to get our heads around. Uh, The book of Ruth comes between the books of Judges and 1 Samuel. The book of Judges is the period of relentless decline. The book of 1 Samuel gets to the coronation of David as God's anointed king. Where would you put the book of Ruth? Well, I put it between Judges and 1 Samuel. I put it between in the days the Judges ruled and David. But that makes us think that the period of the Judges runs from A to B and stops and then comes Ruth and then comes 1 Samuel. It doesn't. The book of Ruth describes events that happened not at the end of the period of the Judges, but right at the start. I hadn't seen that before. And the point of that is that as there is decline, 200 years of it ahead, God is already at work at the same time with a plan to advance his purposes. Now that gives me great heart for this country. Think of China. When God expelled Hudson Taylor's missionaries in 1952, the Western world had endless prayer meetings, seeking answers from God as to what on earth he was doing. And yet God, before their expulsion, had begun to sow the seeds of an indigenous church in China that over the next 10, 20, 30 years has turned into what it is today. So we can expect, and what you learn from a book like Ruth is that what you read here is not an exact replica of what will happen now, but the patterns, the signature of God in that period of history is one we can expect to see now. Can we expect to see that in the dark days of the church in the West today, and they are dark days, there are days like the days of the Judges. How does the book of Judges end? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. These are the days in which we are living. Can we really believe that in the days that we are living, there is a better future? And that now, in this period of decline, God is at work to prepare that better future. Yes, we can. We do not know where. We might think we see it. But that's encouraging for us. Now, if the book of Ruth begins in the days the judges ruled the dark days, and if the book of Ruth ends with the word David, better days, How is it that God gets from A to B in the book of Ruth, from the days in which the judge is ruled to David, God's king? What are the events described in the book of Ruth that get us from A to B? What kind of events are described in the book of Ruth, this blockbuster movie that finished with the king? Well, the events described in the book of Ruth are more like, and apologies if you're a fan, are more like an episode of The Archers. Now, there have been over 18,000 episodes of The Archers, and as far as I can understand, nothing has ever happened. (laughs) For most of its life, the strap line of the Book of Archers was an everyday story of country folk. It's recently been updated to contemporary drama in a rural setting. Ordinary, normal life. What happens in the Book of Ruth? How do you get from, in the days the judges ruled, bleak days, to David, better days? Well, it's an everyday story of country folk. 
Naomi, an older lady who has lost everything, her husband, her sons, her future, and is bitter, broken, and yet God brings her back amazingly, and through his grace and loving kindness, her heart is restored, and God uses her faith. Ruth, a young widow from Moab who sought shelter under the wings of God, and God used her faith. Boaz, who comes from dubious heritage, his mother was Rahab, the prostitute. What a godly man he is. How did God use his active faith? They are the main characters, it's like the archers. The action starts in the country of Moab and the journey back to Bethlehem. Most of it takes place in the fields around Bethlehem, in the barley fields. It's a love story. Sinclair Ferguson, preaching on the book, says it's like the kind of thing you'd read in The People's Friend. If you're old enough, you'll know what The People's Friend is. An ordinary story of country folk. A love story. With these astonishing brackets at either end. There's a wedding. It is striking, and uh, this is a footnote. I don't have time to say this tonight. It is striking, though, that in between the bleakest time and the promised king, at the very heart of the events that God advances from A to B, what do we see? We see a marriage. We see marriage and a wedding. As God again in his word dignifies marriage so highly. There's one more character in the story. is a baby boy born in Bethlehem. Boaz and Ruth have a son. And that little boy, Obed, is the grandfather of King David. How ordinary is all of that? Let me impress that on you. How ordinary is all of that? How ordinary is all of that? How many of you here are like Naomi Perhaps a woman in her 60s, an older lady, who's nothing really to offer. Ruth, a young widow from Moab, who sought shelter under the wings of God, and God used her faith. Boaz, a godly man. A love story, a wedding, a baby boy. Is it possible that God could use you, living in your period of salvation history, to bless his people and to advance his salvation plan until the return of Jesus? I mean, after all, was it not Ruth's godly obedience at that fork in the road on the way back to Moab against all the odds not to go back but to go to Bethlehem where God was? Was it not that decision? that God used to bring her to Boaz? Was it not Rahab's faith a generation before that had taught her son Boaz the Scriptures that made him come to her? And did God not use these ordinary people in these ordinary circumstances to have a baby whose grandson was King David, whose greater son was the Lord Jesus. So is it fair to say that Ruth's simple obedience, the simple obedience of this ordinary Moabite girl was used by God to bless a family, bless a nation, and bless the world? Yes. 
Is it possible then that God could use us? I mean, Ruth is not a Christ figure. She's just a believer. Is it possible that God could use us living in our period of salvation history to bless his people and to advance his salvation plan until the return of Jesus? Is it possible? No. Is it probable? No. Is it certain? Yes. Now, I cannot find a theological reason to persuade me that God will not dignify you or I, if we are believers, by not affording us the privilege of participation in some way in the blessing of others, in the outworking of His purposes, in the advance of His salvation plan. Why would God not dignify you with that? Any less than he did Ruth. It may not be in ways that God used her. Every believer though. Some in significant ways. Most of us in insignificant ways. Although God never has in his mind what we have in our human minds as categories of significant and insignificant. And most of the time like Ruth and Naomi, we do not see the fruit. I mean, Ruth didn't turn to Boaz when Obed was born and say, I wonder if he's going to have a grandson whom God might use. One of the things that the book of Ruth teaches us is that God keeps our eyes from seeing God's providence in our lives you know, Psalm 77, the great providence psalm, God plants his footsteps in the sea. What do you notice about a footstep when it's planted in the sea about one millisecond after it's planted? It's gone. We don't see it. It's when we understand the dignity God affords us in calling us to participate in the outworking of his purposes, and the book of Ruth teaches us that so clearly, it's when we understand that God dignifies you and me through acts of simple obedience with and sometimes through acts of disobedience is that complex theology and root. That God uses us, dignifies us, with participation in the outworking of his sovereign purposes in our period of salvation history, which, like then, moves in troughs and peaks from bleak times to better times, that God uses us to bless others, to build his church. And that understanding of such dignity leads you and I to lives of radical obedience and commitment, trust, and obedience. Now, there's one more thing I want to say, and uh, if I were doing the first talk in Ireland, I'd say one more thing I'd want to say before we drive down the first. Um, I'm not really sure the golfing analogies work. I think I should get rid of them. <laughs> But it will work next week because the old town will be crammed full of golfers. 
Listen again to the message of the book. Even in the darkest of times, in a country, say, or in the Western world, even in the darkest of times in the church, God is sovereignly and providentially at work for the good of His people to advance His salvation plan through His chosen King. And you're thinking, well, that's fine, but what about, what about me? Am I just a pawn on God's giant chessboard? I mean, I can understand the dignity of Him using me and the outworking of getting from A to B, and that's great, but am I just a, a pawn or a, a bishop or a knight or a whatever that He moves around His chessboard to advance His purposes? And the book of Ruth gloriously dispels any notion like that. For as much as these people and these events, ordinary Naomi, ordinary Ruth, ordinary Boaz, an ordinary wedding, an ordinary love story, an ordinary baby boy, as much as God uses these people to advance His purposes through their simple acts of godly obedience, as much as they are caught up in God's plan to bless a family, a nation, to bring salvation to the world, the book of Ruth is just as much about God's salvation and redemption coming into the lives of these people as individuals, about His care for them, about His sheltering of them under His wings, about bringing them back when they have turned away, about lavishing His grace upon them. And if we had five hours on the book of Ruth, my expectation would be that after half an hour of this introduction, until the last hour, we would forget that we began by flying above the trees. We would forget the bookends of darkness to light, and we would find that the Holy Spirit is down with us in the branches of the trees. In this ordinary story, within a story, within a story, as God brings salvation and redemption into the hearts of these individuals. And God puts a baby boy onto the lap of a woman who has lost everything and whom God has emptied of everything to bring her back to Him. Now, that's what the book of Ruth is about. Let me spend how much have we got left? 10, 12 minutes, and then we'll be done. That'll be pretty good going. I'm seeking to reduce my batting average to 30 minutes or just a few more. Well, let me introduce you to one or two of the characters in chapter 1. And Chapter 1 is a very different atmosphere. It's terribly bleak. Spurgeon, I think it was, who said that only preachers who are ministers of churches should get to preach on Ruth chapter 1. You see what he's saying? You know, you can't glibly bounce over verses 1 to 5, can you? Let me give you uh, chapter one. Again, music to the preacher's ears is in three scenes. Verses one to five 
describes a family who leave Bethlehem in Judah to live in the country of Moab for 10 years. I've called this bleak times and bad decisions. In the days the judges ruled, there was a famine. So, and then the focus isn't on the peer of the judges, it's on a family, a family. You see, and the point is that families or individuals, God dignifies by using them in his purposes, and God saves individuals, not nations, but disobedience is also at the level of us. Later on in chapter 1, Naomi says, I went away, I, but the Lord has brought me back. Um, This family, Elimelech, whose name means the Lord is my king and leader. His wife, Naomi, which means pleasant one. And their two sons, Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, went to live in Moab. Now, on the face of it, humanly speaking, the decision seemed reasonable. It's very striking in the book of Ruth that every decision that people take, or or, or we'll get to Ruth and Naomi in a minute, when she says to her daughters-in-law, you need to go back to Moab, and you think, well, no, 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 that's not right. You know, you shouldn't get any marks for that. That's bad theology, and you turn out. The point of the book is that we've got to feel the tension and the real-life nature of the... And we've got to think, well, well, I hope I wouldn't have said that, but I think I probably might have. That's the point, you see. The family leave Bethlehem to feed their kids. But Elimelech knew that all over God's word there were cautions, indeed prohibitions, for God's people then under the old covenant to go and live in Moab. And he should have known that the famine in Bethlehem, the fact that there was no bread on the table in the house of bread, was because of disobedience. God had always said that the first signs of his judgment would be there was no food on the table in Bethlehem. It was like an amber light flashing. And Elimelech should have known that. But he took his family away. He, he should have worked out, what if my boys fall in love with Moabite women? What will the consequences be for ten generations down the track? I guess if you had caught him on the way out of Bethlehem and said, Elimelech, what are you doing? I think what he would have said is this. Look, it's only for a time. It's only for a few months. We'll be back. And I wonder how many people have said that over the years. It's only for a time we're doing what we know is wrong. And that time becomes a long time. And for us in our period of salvation history, it means walking away from Jesus and his word. It means taking a major step in life or a small step that leads to a bigger step that goes against God's word. It might be in all manner of realms, and Ruth's not prescriptive. It might be in the realm of relationships, a Christian marrying someone who is not a Christian. It might be misplaced priorities in life. 
in my be decisions made purely for economic or material gains, the job I've always wanted, or decisions made for comfort I've always wanted to live there. You know, people always say to me that I, I, that's the job I've always wanted, or I've always wanted to live there. And, and the question that they should be asking along with that, is there a living church there? Or does God want me to serve there? Or does God want me to move from the church where I am serving? Or is it right for me to go and live in the country, a country in the world where it's much harder for my children to hear the gospel and be disciples? Now, of course, the answer might be yes. Absolutely yes. Or it might not. I can think of a, a family who went to live in a country in Europe where the gospel is scarce. Very close friends of my parents. 40 years ago, they went. They went at a time in their Christian lives when they were out of sorts with God. In a bleak time in their Christian lives, they made a decision, a bad one. Five years later, that's 35 years ago from now, they had no contact with a living church, no contact with any church, no longer following the Lord Jesus. Forty years later, their children have no consciousness of God, but by God's grace and mercy, 40 years on, they are beginning to return to the Lord. Now, there could be many other applications of this. Let me urge you to listen to the Holy Spirit as he applies this little portion, perhaps very specifically to someone's life here. Do not leave Bethlehem. Do not leave God and his word and go and live in Moab, whatever that means for you. Don't do it. I guess at first when they arrived in Moab, things would have seemed better. They would have had food on the table. And would you not have been Glad as a parent to see your children eating? But then tragedy struck. Now, Elimelech died. As soon as I say this next week in Ireland, somebody is going to speak to me afterwards in the pastoral prayer time, and they'll ask me, was his death associated with her disobedience? We don't know. We don't know. Bible doesn't tell us that. Naomi seems to hint at it. We don't know. He died, but she had her two boys, Malin and Killian, who would care for her. The boys married Moabite women. I mean, that was always going to happen, wasn't it? They were lads. They met and fell in love with Orpah and Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malin and Killian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. I mean, you just think of that. This is why Spurgeon said, do not let anyone preach on this if they're not a minister of a church who has seen what it is like for someone to lose a husband or children. I mean, this could not be bleaker. The husband she married and loved, the boy she held in her arms, they're all dead. And Orpah and Ruth have no children. Three widows. 
I've been thinking over the past week of all sorts of hymns that we could sing next week. I mean, what, what are the possibilities at a low point like this for anyone? Here's George Matheson's hymn. Now, George Matheson wasn't a hymn writer. He wrote this hymn. He only wrote two hymns that anyone ever sings. He wrote this hymn in 20 minutes. Little did he know. O love that wilt not let me go. He wrote it the night of his sister's wedding. He was blind. She was his life, his companion. She'd gone. O love that wilt not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. O joy that seekest me through pain. I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the problem. And somehow, and I do not know how, apart from what I have seen God do in many people's lives, somehow in the darkness, in that distant land, the love of God had not let her go and sought her through the pain. And she couldn't see a rainbow. But there was something that drew her heart like the parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes searching years down the track in the country of Moab for that lost sheep to bring her back. Now, the second scene, verses 6 to 18, the faith mission clock is ticking. (laughs) Returning to the Lord. There's one word that dominates these verses, yet it occurs, let me see how many, 13 times. It's the word shub, Hebrew word. It means return, return. It's the conversion word in Hebrew. It's the come back to the Lord when you have walked away from Him or come to Him for the first time, shub. Now, if you're a Hebrew speaker or a Jew listening to this when it was first written, sometime after the exile, I think, what would you hear from the preacher? You'd be listening and you'd be drifting off and then you would hear shub, shub, shub. What are we hearing? What are you hearing? Return, 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 return. And she begins to return and travels up that road from Moab to Bethlehem, 10 years down the track with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Now, return for you and me might not be some kind of dramatic reversal or change of gear because we're off in a far country or some dodgy place that we shouldn't have gone. You know what it might be? For us, for you, what it's been for me as I've prepped this, it's not a return from some far-off place. It's just a, a coming back to where I once was with the Lord. Here's William Cowper. Oh, for a closer walk with God, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view? of Jesus and his word. Return. And Naomi did. She heard that the Lord had provided food and something in her, if it was us, we'd call it the Holy Spirit, drew her back to Bethlehem. 
And then they come to a fork in the road. And imagine a fork in the road in your mind. It's a big crossroads, yeah? And there's two signs. One says Bethlehem, and the other one says Moab. And the road to Bethlehem is twisty and turny and steep and narrow. And the road to Moab is like the new M8. There's no roadworks on the M8, I think, at the moment. It's the only time in salvation history when that's happened. I can't use that illustration next week. It'll just stare at me. But that, that's, that's how it is. That's the road to Moab. It's a great big white highway. The road to Bethlehem where God is. And, and Ruth. Now why does she do this? Why does she turn to the two women that they have been thrown together, bonded together so strongly? And says to them, look, go back to Moab. Go back. Why does she do that? Because she's a broken woman. And she thinks, if you go with me, there's nothing. There's nothing. You're not going to get a husband. And in the uh, Jewish people, uh, they couldn't just go and find some boy in Bethlehem and marry them. They need to marry someone in the family. So she gives this hypothetical scenario. Even if I married someone tonight and had boy, in fact, it had to be twins. And you waited for them to grow up, then marrying them, and, and they'd be too old, and you'd be too old. After all, you haven't had any kids in 10 years. Zero chance. She kissed them. They wept. It's as poignant as it gets. They wanted to go with her. She said, don't come with me. Now, before we stand six feet above contradiction and turn up our theological textbooks and say, why are you encouraging these people to go to Moab? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? I can find myself, if I am bitter and bleak and broken, saying to people, look, it's okay. Just go. There's a bit, I think, in Naomi too, that she couldn't face the people of Bethlehem, returning without a husband, without any sons, with a Moabite daughter-in-law beside her. And Orpah goes back, and then the text says she went back to her people and, what does it say? To her gods. And her name disappears from the pages of this book. And her name disappears from the pages of salvation history because she made the wrong decision. Naomi is not a saint. Ruth is. She clung to her mother-in-law. The word is cleave. It's the covenant word. And she says these marvelous, marvelous words. I think that's why this book is called the book of Ruth and not the book of Naomi. Um, it's just as much about Naomi, but Ruth gets the title because of these words. Just listen to them. Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. 
Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and then I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. She is leaving her family, her land. She is facing, as far as she knows, a life of widowhood and childlessness. She is going to an unknown land. She is a Moabitess and is going to live amongst the Jewish people. But she speaks the language of faith. It is covenant language. How is it that words like I, God's words, will be to my people, your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It is these covenant promises that have somehow so saturated Ruth's mind and heart that she is able to reflect them back at God. Where you go, I will go, and where you die, I will die. This woman is converted. And she doesn't make the decision out of affection for her mother-in-law, however deep that affection is. She's not going to Bethlehem until her mother-in-law dies. Where you die, I will die. I have made this decision for life. What a costly decision that young woman took. Now, if you know the rest of the story of Ruth, you will know how God used her godly obedience that day at the fork of the road to walk away from the wide road and go up the narrow road where there were absolutely no promises on the basis simply of words. I mean, the, the kingdoms of this world are visibly attractive. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of cost. But as the disciples said to Jesus, we will follow you because you have the words of eternal life. Ruth is an amazing, but she never saw what would happen when she took that decision on the road. The final scene, verses 19 to 22, we're back in Bethlehem. Back in Bethlehem is the title. <laughs> the women say, can this be Naomi? There's no sarcasm there. I think what they're looking at, they're looking at a woman who is broken and bitter. The kind of woman who cannot cry anymore because she's so sad. The people I've seen in pastoral ministry who are the most distressed are the ones who cannot cry. She'd left with her husband and her boys. And she comes back with none of them. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Is she right? Well, she is right in that the Lord has, in his sovereignty, allowed these things to happen. Her theology in what she says is better than the theology in her heart. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She can see no good in it, no purpose in it. She cannot really believe or feel that the Lord has brought her back or why he has. I wonder if in her heart 
And sometimes I can echo this in my own heart. Perhaps she wished that he hadn't done it. She cannot see any purpose in the pain and the tragedy. She can see no future and feel no hope. There are signs of hope, of course. There's food in Bethlehem. There are her husband's relatives in Bethlehem that she seems to have forgotten about. And there's a girl beside her who she doesn't even notice. Ruth, who's been converted. How has she been converted? Who told her of the promises of Yahweh, of the Lord? Naomi, probably. Signs of hope and tokens of grace. All she can see is darkness and bitterness and emptiness. And who of us in her shoes would see anything different? And that is why we need each other. When I am at my bleakest, I need another Christian to say to me, look, look, look at these tokens of grace. It's not glib, text-pelting quotations. It's grace. Look at what God has been doing. I wonder if there's somebody here tonight, and I bet there'll be a pile of them in Port Stewart next week. And what has happened in your life has left you, like Naomi, feeling empty and without hope. And you find in this biblical character someone who is so real. You've not lost faith in God. You do not doubt God's sovereignty, but you're broken and you're bitter. But the Lord has brought you back. You might even wish he hadn't, but he has. The Lord has brought you here tonight because he wants to bless you. He wants you to shelter under his wings. And nobody, not any preacher, can tell you why he has done that. But he has. And I'd love you to come back tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and, and hear how God's grace steals upon her life. Naomi's and Ruth's. Let me finish with this. I quoted earlier from the hymn writer William Cowper. He was a man who suffered from depression all of his life. The illness above all illnesses that robs people of hope, of purpose, of any sense of God's love and care. Around the time he wrote this hymn, shortly afterwards, I think, some even say the same night he attempted suicide. The story goes that he asked one of his servants to drive him to London Bridge so he could jump off the bridge. It was a foggy night. And I think the servant knew his master well and guessed the reason for the journey. The servant claimed he lost his way in the fog and instead drove Cowper to the home of his friend, John Newton, who persuaded him to believe the words that he had just written. Let me read them to you and we'll close. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm deep in unfathomable minds, 
of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And so Naomi and Ruth arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would etch the truths of this portion of Scripture deep into the souls of all those in this room. We pray, Lord, that those who feel they stand in the shoes of Naomi, bitter and broken and emptied of all things, and yet sensing that the Lord has brought them back, grant them, Lord, by your grace, the ability to keep with the Lord and to come under the shelter of his wings. And may your grace steal upon them. And Lord, if there are Naomi's in this room, if there are Ruth's rather in this room, who have had to make tough decisions for the gospel, will you reassure them of the dignity of how you use our trust and obedience for the blessing and good of others. And if, Lord, there are Elimelechs in this room where every visible reason is to go somewhere for the wrong reasons, help them not to go and to stay where God is. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.